0: I'm sorry, I don't have any um, PowerPoint tonight or any pictures, so you'll have to use your mind's eye. I was unable to get that together. But we are looking at seven churches here in the book of Revelation. And after every church is addressed, the Lord says, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. So that even if you read about one church, you're like, "Yeah, I'm not sure we're like that or I'm like that. We still need to give an ear to each of these churches, to the Lord's Word, to each of these churches. Tonight we're going to look at, there's different ways of describing this church. I call it the church in the city of Satan, the church of Pergamos. And you'll see why. The church in Pergamos. Pergamos was a city, and we'll describe it in a little bit. So let's look in Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. Revelation 2, verses 12 to 17. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos, write These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works, and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. And thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith, even in the days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr who was slain among you, where Satan dwelleth. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate, repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly and will fight with, will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. So this is called, verse 12, the church in Pergamos. Satan is referred to twice here. It's called the church where Satan's seat is. It's called the church or the place where, at the end of verse 13, Satan dwelleth. I've heard when John McCain was alive, I hear him occasionally on local radio, and uh, he would do an interview on local radio. And I heard him say this more than once. He would say something to um, the, the talk show host, and he'd say something like, well, greetings from the, 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 the city of Satan. You know, He'd say something like that, referring to Washington, D.C., you know, the city of Satan. He'd kind of say it with a chuckle, and I heard him say it more than once. And I, he'd say it with a chuckle, and I'm thinking, I mean, is, there, does he, is he serious about that? Because I know that um, Satan does like to be um, extra active in certain places. Um, I've heard other people call it, you know, the city of Satan or, you know, Las Vegas, the city, the sin city, you know? And um, I remember we, we support the Wells, the Brad Wells family up there. Who started a church in Washington D.C. and um, he, when he was in when he was in um, um, New Guinea as a missionary, he felt like it's kind of a longer story. I won't tell you the whole story, but basically, he felt like God was telling him, "Go cry against that wicked city." When it was borrowing, it was from the the words of I think it was Jonah when God told Jonah to go cry against uh, Nineveh. And he felt like God was personalizing it, saying, Washington, D.C., go cry against that. And um, I mean, I'm glad for the country we have it, but it's getting incredibly wicked. And and obviously there's, I would think, I'm not being, this isn't fanciful, this isn't fiction, but there's got to be demons that want to have a part in what's going on there. If we know our Bible, I mean, as a side here, if you read in the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 11, Daniel's receiving this vision and one of the angels that came to him said, you know, I was hindered by this prince of Persia. And he wasn't referring to a human, he was referring to a demonic power that was hindering him. And then there was another prince of Grisha that was hindering another angel. So there's angels that are, demonic angels that are powerful, that are interested in politics, according to the Bible and government. They're called principalities and powers and and so anyway so uh, so I remember the wells when he's there and, and he's, he's 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 started the church and I'd love to go visit them and um, and uh, they're doing a lot of online stuff right now and they do a lot of open air things and and then the lundbergs Bobby and uh, April and the girls they moved from here to there and joined with the the wells and he said that uh, it was a good uh, it's been a uh, good thing for them to be there. It's been challenging because it's unlike any, I mean, the city's unlike any city, and the church is unlike most typical suburb churches, but he says it's been good, and I remember him telling me, when was it the, I think it's Brett Kavanaugh, the, was that two years ago or so he got confirmed? I remember Bobby saying that, because like every Saturday night, they go to the steps of the, uh, I think it's of the Supreme Court or one of the places, and they're praying like every Saturday night, and he says he remembers being there, uh, on one of the evenings, and there was a whole bunch of people gathering, starting to gather around. They were praying, but there's other people gathering around. And these these liberals are livid at the thought that somebody who might vote to protect the life of an innocent baby in the womb, they are livid to think that somebody who might vote or judge to protect the life of a baby in a womb might become a judge. They were livid about that. I mean, they've got to be able to keep their right to let somebody slaughter a baby if it's unwanted in the womb. So they were, they were around there. They were protesting and they were chanting and they had their megaphones and they were, they were saying things, whatever. And Bobby and, you know, some of the brothers were praying and probably some of the sisters, and he said, you could just feel evil in the air. He says, we weren't engaged with them. We weren't like trying to, you know, chat with them. They were doing their thing and we could just feel the, e- just feeling it, the evil in the air uh, over the, this mentality That was in there, in that, in that group there, Um, but sometimes some places are called the city of Satan. Well, here this is called the place where Satan's seat is. 2,000 years ago, apparently Satan liked to nestle there. Apparently he had a lazy boy there. Apparently he had a throne there. Apparently he liked to hang out there in a unique way. Satan is not some generic evil. See, there's a lot of people, oh, Satan, It's just it just means kind of evil. Satan is a person who's confined to time and space. He's a spirit. He's a demonic spirit. He can manifest himself physically, but he is a person, a powerful person, most powerful angel Um along with the good one, Michael, the archangel, but he is a very powerful angel, a powerful, uh, the, the most powerful demon, and, but he's contained to time, to time and place, and apparently he likes to camp out someplace if we're to follow and believe the Bible. Well, this is a church that was close to him, a church that existed, Pergamus. And they had some good things, and they had a few bad things that God had to correct them on. So let's dive into this. Let's dive into, again, the five-point outline is the address, the attribute, the assessment, the assignment, and the announcement. Those are pretty much our common outline as we go through this. So let's look at this. The address. So verse 12, I know the angel of the church in Pergamos. What was Pergamos? Again, if you can imagine if you can remember now, Pergamus—the address of it. If you can imagine now, Asia Minor or modern-day Turkey, the west end of that. You have kind of a circle of churches in that area. And God first addressed Ephesus, and then what did we do? Uh, Smyrna, and now we have Pergamus. And so now, north of Pergamus—pardon me—north of Smyrna was Pergamus. It was a little more inland, and. Pergamus means, the word means um, capital, or it has the idea of elevation or height. It comes from a word that means like a fortress or a citadel. And they believed that they named it Pergamos because it was literally a capital of a province there. And the province, there's many provinces that made up the Roman Empire. So you have the Roman Empire going around the, 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 the rim of the Mediterranean and thoroughly into Europe. You have the Roman Empire. You have at the over here in the in, in Turkey or Asia here, you have different provinces of the Roman Empire, and this was a capital of a Roman province. So it was a headquarters, so to speak, uh, for some Roman activity and some Roman government. <clears throat> Not the headquarters, but it was one of them. Uh, apparently, Pergamus had a world-famous library, um, second to the huge library that was in Alexandria, Egypt. They, it's apparently, there was about 200,000 volumes of books there. which I mean, that sounds like a lot today, even, to have that many books. Uh, how much more then? Also, this city of Pergamus, the address here. We're learning about the address. What else was there? Well, if you were to go tour, you know, sometimes you go into a town or you go to a hotel in a new town and you, and you start pulling, you know, little cards out of the thing by the, by the counter where you're checking in and out. Oh, oh they have a Knott's Berry Farm nearby? Oh. Well, that's, that's 500 miles away. Why do they have that here? Anyways, you know, you'd see these little cards of things like a railroad or, or some sightseeing you pull If you were to go into Pergamus into the hotel, so to speak, some of the cards that you'd pull out to advertise, that advertise some place to go to would be like the temple to Zeus, the temple to this person, the temple to that false god, the temple. I mean, you'd have little, there's, there's again, several temples, pagan temples to go to. That's what people would do. Well, also, so now let's look at the attribute. Notice here, the Lord is addressing this church. We all have ears to hear, so we want to hear what the Spirit says here. He says, these things saith he which hath, what is, how does Jesus describe himself? The one who has the sharp sword with two edges. How many of you kids, how many of you kids, your dad's allowed you to have a knife or your mom? And I don't mean the kitchen knife. All right, you got a knife. How many of you kids have had to sharpen it? Anybody have to sharpen it yet? All right, how many of you need to sharpen one right now because your dad said, oh, Kendall's gotta sharpen one? You know, you get a, sharp, a knife that's not sharp, you're like, man, I gotta sharpen this thing, otherwise it could hurt somebody. Well, it you know, you get a really, really sharp knife, you gotta be careful with that as well. A double-edged sword, whoa, double-edged sword. I would really like, to, I've never seen one, I'd like to see one. Um, but no matter what, I mean, if you move a knife one way, it's going to cut, and you, if you hit the back of it, it's not going to do anything. But a double-edged sword, whatever way it contacts, this way or that way, it's cutting stuff, movement forward or backward. And the Bible describes the Lord Jesus Christ as one who has the double-edged sword, the sharp two-edged sword. That is, the word that he gives, it really cuts, it works. There's at least two things that I think of that are distinct about a, a double-edged sword. Uh, It represents Jesus' discerning ability. He can discern. He can cut and discern this from that, right from wrong, good from bad. He can discern. The Bible says the Word of God is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And so the Lord Jesus Christ discerns people with His sword. He can also destroy. A sword destroys. It's It's a symbol of judgment. The Lord Jesus Christ, it's described in the book of Revelation that he, when He comes back, He has the sword with it, um, and He will rule the nations. And he, that means, <clears throat> you know, all He has to do is say something, and you, you die, if need be. Or um, He can discern different things. So that's what He's described as, is the one with the sharp sword with two edges. Now notice also, now it gets a little more of, of a thorough point here, the, the assessment. That's, uh, we had the address, the attribute of Christ, And now the assessment of the church. And the the assessment comes in two halves. We have a good assessment and we have a bad assessment. So he says in verse 13, here's the, verse 13 describes the good assessment of the church. This is some some good things they have going. He says, I know thy works. I know thy works. Let's just pause right there. Again, we've heard this phrase before, but it's good to remember this. Jesus knows the works of Royal View Baptist Church or the last thereof. He knows it. He knows it. It's not like he has to come in, come inside and check. He knows all things. He needs not that any man testifies of man. He knows what's in man. He knows what's in the church. And so um, he says, I know that works. He knows the nature of it. And he says, and where thou dwellest. I know where you're, I know where you're, you're abiding. I know where the church is located, even where Satan's seat is. They were near a, a major domain of Satan. I don't know how all that worked. I just know that somehow Satan's presence was certainly... It was there, it was in proximity of this church, of this particular church, and it probably they probably felt it, and it was probably intimidating. Sometimes I'm just being quite honest with you. There's time, have you ever had times where you felt like, for whatever feelings are worth, you just felt like there's evil around me. I can't if I could if I plugged my ears and I closed my eyes, if I was blind and deaf, I would still feel it. Have you ever been like that? Okay, I've been like that. I've, there's been times where I'm like, there's just, I'm not, I know there's me and there's this other person, but there's something else here, you know? My, um, uh, my um, uh, evil detector is going off here, the, the, the demon detector. I remember, quite honestly, there was times, and I think I had a few teenagers in here come with us. We went out on Easter um, week to, to the Mesa temple, the Mormon temple there in Mesa, down Main Street, and I was with my uncle, my Uncle Phil, and we we, would, we were witnessing talking to people on the street and giving out some tracts and stuff like that. <clears throat> and I'm telling you, man, that was, I felt, it was like nice-looking people, smiling people, clean-looking people, beautiful temple as far as the external stuff, well-groomed, well-groomed grass, you know, uh, nice stage, and they're doing whatever on there. But I was like, damn. You know, Satan's here, and and quite frankly, he is. Satan is interested in advancing a false gospel. The God of this world, Satan has blinded the minds of them which believe not. He wants to keep people blinded from the gospel of grace. And so, being there, I felt like I felt like just Satan's got some. Maybe not he himself, but certainly, uh, certainly some demons there. And I felt like that. And as I was going, and even one of the persons that we dealt with, my uncle dealt with, it was just like, it was, it was intense uh, uh, with this one particular man. But anyway, so, so the Lord Jesus says to the Pergamus church, He said, I know where you're at. You're, you're where Satan dwells. And, uh, and he's complimenting him, Lotus. He says, And thou holdest fast my name and hast not denied my faith. Now, that's good news. He's complimenting. He says, good job, Church of Pergamos. I mean, you're right next to you. are a neighbor to Satan. Um, He likes to hang out around there. And you have not denied my name. You've you've said, yes, we believe in Jesus. Yes, he's the Son of God, co-equal with God, eternal. And we have not denied his name and, and we're not hiding our light. And he compliments them for that hold fast my name, hast not denied my faith. That's a good thing that we need to have in our day and age, to, to stand for the Lord, to hold fast His name, not deny Him. <clears throat> so the Lord compliments him. Here's some good things. And then He, oh, He compliments a martyr. He says, even in the days, even in those days where an Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you, where Satan dwelleth? Wow! The Lord specifically names a martyr, Antipas. This man named Antipas, and the Lord Jesus says, "You've, you've been you, church. You've stood for me. You haven't denied my name." And I remember Antipas referring to some some maybe a few years back. Antipas, there one of your one of your church members. My now listen to listen to what Jesus calls this man. My. Faithful martyr. What a compliment. Now we're all his children. We are all belong to the Lord, but in, in another level, imagine to be called his faithful martyr. The word martyr actually means witness, but I think that um, it's implied here also that he died as a witness. We don't know much about Antipas, this man, um, except what is stated he was a faithful witness. And what we can discern from his name, his name means anti-fathers. So, I mean, church history has like nothing about this guy. We hardly know anything. Maybe his name, I don't know why his name is anti-fathers. Maybe it's because he went against the tradition of fathers. I'm not sure. But Jesus knows him and Jesus sees what he did and Jesus sees how he stood for him. Aren't you glad that the Lord knows you? He knows the stand that you have to take when nobody else is looking. He knows that there's that times when you haven't denied the faith when, it, when you could have mm-hmm. or denied his name. He knows him. So he compliments him, but then he says this. Notice um, verse 14, but, however, let's get to the other news here. I have a few things against thee. Oh, I don't like that. I don't like hearing that right there. I don't want Jesus to have anything against me. Now I know He's my Savior, and that's not going to change. And He's your Savior, and that's not going to change. But as a, in our relationship, that you got something against me, what is it? I want to I don't want to have anything against me. How many of you, you know, you just between your husband or wife, you don't want anything against each other? It's like I, I want it clear. I want it, I want it good. You know, um, I, I tell my wife, I don't care if the world's falling apart. I just want to have us get along. You know. If we're getting along, I don't care if the world's falling apart. If the world's perfect and we're not getting along, it might as well be falling apart, you know. Or with a friend, it's no fun when a friend has something against you, or you them. And well, here's the Lord; He has He speaks to the church because I got a few things against you. And I hope that this would perk their ears and say, "Let's not let's clear this, whatever this is, Lord." And for us as a church, and for you as an individual, if you know that the Lord has some things against you, that is, you know, He's He's into, He's rebuked you on something. He's uh, reproved you on something, then take care of it. Repent. Well, what are the two? There's two main things that the Lord says he has against them. It's uh, the, the do- those that hold the doctrine of Balaam and hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. And we'll try to break that down. Look what it says in verse 14. But that because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam. Well, Balaam. What else does it say of Balaam? who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel and to eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication. So we're going to have to explore just for a little bit Balaam who taught Balak something. So follow me. Let's go to Numbers. You can hold your place and we'll go to the book of Numbers. And let me see here, chapter, Numbers chapter 25. Numbers chapter 25, and we'll read verses 1 to 3, and then I'm going to go look at another verse, and we're going to come back to Numbers chapter 25. So it says, And Israel abode in Shittim, and the people began to commit whoredom with the daughters of Moab. And they called the people unto the sacrifices of their gods, and the people did eat and bowed down to their gods, And Israel joined himself unto Baal Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Again, that was Numbers 25, verses 1 to 3. Now turn to Numbers chapter 31, but hold your place in chapter 25. We're trying to learn about Balaam and Balak because it's referred to in Revelation. Now look at um, verse... Thirteen. Now, this is after a battle, and after this one battle, the Israelites saved some of these pagan uh, women and from another nation. And Israel and Moses was upset. Numbers thirty-one, verse thirteen. We'll begin reading. <clears throat> it says, "And Moses and Eleazar the priest and, and all the princes of the congregation went forth to meet them without the camp. That is, the men who came back from the war. <clears throat> and Moses was wroth with the officers of the host." with the captains over thousands and captains over hundreds, which came from the battle. And Moses said unto them, Have you saved all the women alive? Behold, these, that is the idea of women, saving these pagan women, these have caused the children of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to commit trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor and there was a plague among the congregation of the Lord. So there's a this other battle. The men save these women. And, and Moses is like, what? They should have been gone with the rest of them because doing something like this was a major problem a few years back. This is what got us in pro, in some trouble, saving these uh, women who've led them to whoredom, immorality, and fornication. So... He said it was through, look at verse 15. This happened, the, referring to the past event, through the council of Balaam. Now let's go back to chapter 25. I'm going to say a few things and we're going to read those verses again. So here's the deal. I'll try to tell the story the best I can. Um, Israel's wandering in the wilderness. <clears throat> this other, this other um, pagan uh, king, Balak, sees Israel. And he has this soothsayer, this hired prophet that he wants to call call on and pay him to to pronounce a curse on God's people. And I think this goes over the course of a couple chapters. And Balaam says, I don't like these people. I don't like these people. Hey, give me my my, uh, uh, prophet for hire. Come on over here. And and he calls uh, Balaam to come and and to, to curse these people, curse these people. And there's this back and forth and back and forth. And Balaam, God actually gets a control of Balaam and does not let him curse God's people. This is an interesting thing. And God actually speaks prophecy through this man, Balaam. There's even a prophecy about Jesus through this man. And several times, Balaam's like, you know, I can't do unless God tells me. You know, and he's, he feels very spiritual. Like, man, this guy, man, it's a good guy, you know, but he's not. And, um, and he was the one who was riding the donkey, and the donkey's like, ouch, that hurt. You know, he just, um, you know, he talks back to him. Anyways, so you have this King Balak and Balaam. Several times, Balak kept trying to pay Balaam to curse Israel. Balaam's like, I can't curse those who God blesses. God keeps blessing them, God keeps blessing them. All right, Balak's like, that's ah, done, I'm done then. Well, the children of Israel went their way, and apparently, according to, this, to the, what we see in Scripture, Apparently Balaam came back to Balak and said, Hey, if you want to get to them, I can't curse them. I can't pronounce a prophet, I can't pronounce a divine curse on them because God won't let me. But if you want to get to them, I got some counsel for you. If you want to get the advantage on these people, you want to, you as Balak and your people want to get in, pagan people, get an advantage over these divine people. I mean, it's they're they're God's people, and but you want to get an advantage of them? Use your women. Allure them. You know, get your lovely ladies out there. And uh, they can walk out there and say, Hi, big boy. You know, I don't know what they'd say. <laughs> but, uh, you know, get them. And and, lure, and then have them, have them sell some of the beautiful barbecuing meat at your pagan feasts. And they'll be like, Oh, that smells good. Can we come over? Yeah, come on over. You know, and, and bring them over to the sacrifices of your gods, and let them join in on it. And, hey, and let those guys, let the men... Just uh, be, you know, drawn by the ladies. You'll win them over. And then pretty soon they'll be eating the meat with you. And then they'll be bowing down to your gods. And guess what happened? Let's look at chapter 25. Because remember, Balaam, it is stated that Balaam was the one that gave the counsel for the things that happened in verses 1, 2, and 3. Balaam counseled Balak to do this tactic. Israel abode in Chittim. The people began to commit whoredom with the daughters of Moab, this other group. They called the people... Unto the sacrifices of their gods, and the people did eat and bowed down to their gods, and Israel joined himself unto Baal Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against the Lord. Now, taking those three verses and taking chapter thirty-one, uh, the verses in chapter thirty-one, the picture is: you had the females, their sensuality bringing the guys in; you had the food. And you had the faltering in their faith. Next thing you know, people, Israelites, were drawn over by these lovely, not ladies, but lovely women in their eyes and alluring them. And they fornicated with them, committed whoredom. And before they're eating with them, and they're all of a sudden bowing down to these false gods. Now, these Israelites, of all people, knew the, the, the right theology. They met God in the wilderness. They they knew the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, their fathers. They saw God on Mount Sinai, say, I am the Lord thy God. There's you don't have you don't worship any other gods. Don't bow down. To, they knew that. They knew that. They thundered out of heaven, and they saw in the Ten Commandments. And now here they are, compromised through sensuality, compromised through the the whole scenery of the of the sacrifice to idols. And now they're bowing down, engaging in their type of worship. Well, that is the counsel of Balaam. That's the doctrine of Balaam. And I'm trying to, I would say this in my understanding of the doctrine of Balaam. It means. When somebody tries to win somebody over through sensuality, I wanna win, I wanna influence God's people, I wanna influence people through sensuality. Sensual music, sensual messages, sensual people, sensual dress. That's the teaching of Balaam to Balak. Win them over, win them over to what? Whatever you wanna do. You know, win them over with those things. Sensuality, and it led to fornication and and part of it was eating meat sacrificed to idols and um, committing idolatry. Let's read back in Revelation because I want to bring what I think is a modern-day example. Again, the Lord says, verse 14... I have a few things against thee because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel and to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit fornication. I think what can happen, I think what can happen today is we can get to where, how can I win somebody over to what I'm doing? How can I get somebody over on my side how can we get more people to church by the way getting people to church and getting people saved are two different things let's not forget that we can if we really really wanted royal view to get a crowd we could but we might be at a horrible compromise and we do by all means want to save some by all means but i I well, listen, I've shared these with you. I'll share them with you again. I remember a few years ago. I remember getting stuff in the mail, and I want to preface this first of all as saying, as a church, I'm not claiming that we have the best evangelistic niche and uh, momentum in the whole valley. As a church, we certainly don't. We need we need to we need we need a, a more of an evangelistic fire in this church. We do, but I know one thing I don't want to try, and that is sending out mailers like this. Um, all in. All in. At first, I'm like, why did I get this? Taking the risks in the real world, the Voyage Church, and he's pushing out the poker chips and stuff like that. Now, somebody's like, eh, you know, eh, what's the big deal? I'm like, well, what's the big deal? People, pe- There's people, I know people right now who've ruined their lives this way. Gambling. And um, And then it tells about kind of how hip and cool it is and And everything, and again, it's not. There's nothing wrong with having fun and some bounce around and stuff. We've done that, but it's just like, why are we using something that's kind of edgy, that's like that, to win? Um, I want to use something, but not like this. I I think the best thing we can use is your compassionate face, and mine. I mean it. A heart filled with the love of Jesus and a true compassion for somebody who's dying, going to hell that's great advertisement. I mean it. Sometimes it's easier to spend $3,000 on mailers than to spend three or four or five uh, or whatever days in a row praying an hour a day for a lost soul. Sometimes it's easier to just pay the money, send something out, hope we win somebody, versus just spending time on our face saying, God, give me a great burden for lost people and let them see it. And let me move with, be moved with compassion like you are. I think that could win. That really can. But this is, this is one of those things that let's use paganism to help win people. Right. No, no. And then there's another one. I've shared this with you before, and I'll, I'll share it again. And, and I want to go ahead and take the time to read this letter, too. So please be patient with me. Uh, another time I found a, a note card on the, on the outside of our van. Uh, it was like this. I put a little post-it over it. Um, it was a note card on the outside of our van at Walmart in, uh, at Santan and I'm like, "What? Am I not in Vegas? What am I getting this trashy stuff for?" You know, and it said, "Welcome to Sex in the City. Again, you have the poker and the gambling and you have a kind of a Las Vegas background and this lady put a little post-it over her. She needed a little bit more clothing, so I helped clothe her with a yellow post-it." And I'm like, "What is this?" And I'm like, "What?" No, don't tell me this is a church. And I flip it over and it says, "Sex in the City" and it describes Oh, there is a church, you know, this is in small print, right at the problem that provides this particular church, and it has the, the dates of certain sermon series. And there's nothing wrong with that. That can be helpful to catch people's attention. You know, I think it'd be good if I could do, we would like to do something like that on family issues. But this is like racy stuff. I don't even want to read you the title of some of these sermon titles. Episode 1. Episode 2, sermon title. Episode 3, sermon title. I'm like, what is this? And then it's the address, and it has the number, the name of the website of this church. Then, uh, musical guests include Fourth Man in the Fire, Failing Perfection, Two Days Till Tomorrow, DJ Scribe, and more. And then it has an address. And I'll just tell you, I, I, I and I've shared this before, but I want you to hear the whole story. I was like, this is ridiculous. Um, I'm not chasing after everything that's you know offensive or goofy or weird. If I did, then I'd never, I didn't have time to do anything. But I thought, you know, I love Gilbert. I'm a pastor here. I'm a Christian. I love Gilbert. And I know there's Mormons here. And I know there's people who are nothing. I know there's people who are Catholics. And I guess I want to see him saved by all means, whether it's Royal View Baptist or not. I want to see him saved, even if some new guy, some new guy comes in and does things a little bit differently. But he's sound in the gospel. Say, see him saved. So, but this is not good. Using sensuality to try to win somebody over. And so I, re- I wrote this. I'll just read this to you. I, I I sent the guy an email, and I said, "Dear pastor slash fellow brother." I received your invite card while at Walmart park, in the Walmart parking lot. I checked out your website and statement of faith, and I concur with much of your doctrine. Your invite card does not personally offend me, but it does disappoint me as a fellow pastor. It is sickening how market-driven and over-seeker-sensitive some churches have become that we have, a, that we have to appeal to our lost community in such a way that is through sex. I know that the Bible has amazing insight and truth to our sex life in our relationship with our spouses. And yes, Christian men more than ever need solid teaching in that area. But when Christ gave us the Great Commission, did he have this in mind? Are we supposed to appeal to every fleshly vice that the world wallows in in order to, quote, get people to church? You should not glory in this type of market-driven outreach. It is a shame to the cause of Christ. We would be better off getting on our face before God and asking him to break our hearts for souls, then go out and compel them to come in. There is nothing more compelling than the cross of Christ and a compassionate uh, soul winner. These fleshly appeals are a shame. I do not think that I am anything but by the grace of God. I am not trying to hurt you or your church, but I will speak up when the appeals of the gospel have been compromised as you have. We, all of us Christians, need to get back to the New Testament and surveying the New Testament instead of surveying the latest market survey. His servant, Mike Henry. And I'll be honest with you, he responded well. Well. Not that he changed, but I'll read everything he said in his response. I'm not saying it's all true, but I'll read it. Dear pastor, thank you for your note. I guess we'll have to agree to disagree. I believe it is our obligation as servants of Christ to spread the gospel to everyone. I will use whatever creative technique I can to draw people to a venue that shares the good news. I'll uh, stop right there. But you're using sin to get them to the venue. So you could preach against sin? I'll use a balloon. I'll use a men's barbecue. I'm not going to use sin here. Come here, come here, come here. There's some good-looking girls around here, buddy. Woo-hoo. I mean, that's that's a little not right. And then say, oh, by the way, Jesus saved you from your sin. What kind of sin? Oh, like lusting after women. Well, that's how you got me here. So anyways, he says, and he says, I will use whatever creative method I can to draw people to a venue that shares the good news. Jesus certainly did. Not that way. I pray you will do the same. Our church is, I'm glad he says this, our church is on our knees before God daily to bring souls, to bring in souls. Please join us as we pray that Gilbert in the Southeast Valley will come to know God in a personal way. And now he refers to this card because apparently it was a series. Our series will focus on Corinth, Paul, and the Corinthian church. I'll be teaching out of the book of 1 Corinthians. Please keep this series and the unchurched in your prayers. God's blessing, and he names his name. I don't want to name him because... I know he's still here, and I'm ho- hoping that something's changed. But I, but I guess I, I, I want to bring this out because this is an example. What I've shared with you is not like, oh, that's weird, isolated. This type of stuff ha- has been happening probably for 20 years in the last 20 years of this country, sprinkled throughout, trying crazy weird stuff like that, where it's like let's use sin or something uh, racy like that, and then, and then what are you going to preach, the gospel after that? Um, and so I think that's like saying, is this Balaam counseling Balak to use sensuality to win somebody? And the Lord says, I don't like that. I don't like that. Now, the extreme for us is like, yeah, let's just be holy and all to ourselves and not say anything to anybody. No, no. We got to be engaged with people and be different than people and be love- more loving to people and not um, be just like everybody else, but also be engaged with everybody else. That's what we need. And so the Lord says, I have a problem with that. I got a problem with that type of philosophy. I have a problem with that type of ministry philosophy. And that's what I have against this church. So Pergamus had some mentality like that in that church. Though they stood, by and large, they stood for the gospel. They had this mentality like that. And then he says, there's another thing I have against you. He says, verse 15, So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. That was mentioned. The doctrine of the Nicolaitans was mentioned with the church of Ephesus. There's a kind of a debate on what really is the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. I tend to think it was some kind of doctrine that somehow the net effect of it was that they they elevated pastors and leaders to an unwarranted level. Conquer the people was the the idea of the word Nicolaitan. And uh, some think that this mentality, this doctrine of the Nicolaitans and this religious philosophy where, you know, there's there's common people, then there's the pastors and the clergy and the bishops. Some think that this mentality is what led to what you see in the Catholic Church. We have a totally different dress, a totally different um, lifestyle, and you have kind of a, almost like they have a different set of morals than everybody else. And you have... Uh, priests and bishops and cardinals and whatever, whatever else, and a pope. What? Where did that come from? That didn't come from the Bible. And so some think that's where it grew out of that mentality. Well, the Lord says, I hate that. So that's his assessment to them. Now his assignment, real easy assignment. Real easy. Well, it's short. I don't know if it's easy. Verse 16, repent. Repent or else I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against him with the sword of my mouth. We need to repent repent. But is there something that we need to repent of? Is there some mentality that we need to repent of? Is there some immoral inclination that we need to repent of? Is there some sensuality that we need to repent of individually? The Lord says to the church, repent of that. Perhaps he's also saying collectively to, or collectively to the church and, and even to the leaders, don't tolerate that philosophy or that teaching in this church. Don't tolerate this. We want to be a holy people unto the Lord. And so that's their assignment. And then, oh, he says, or else I will fight. This is, not, this is an or else here, verse 16. Or else I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Wow. The Lord's going to fight with the sword of his mouth. You know what's amazing? Let's just think about this. Whenever there's something that's wrong from some, versus what's right, um, one of the best things to do is fight it with, the sword of God. Now, the beginning of winning something in your life, whether it's an emotional struggle, you know, a relational struggle, um, whatever type of struggle, the beginning of winning starts with the right mentality about it. It starts with God's word. What does God's word say about this addiction? What does God's word say about this sin I'm battling? What does God's word say about my emotional issues? Start with the sword first. Start with that first. And go from there. And the Lord says, I'm going to fight against this philosophy, this false doctrine with the sword of my mouth. My word has something that will slay this thing if you don't change. And then let's wind this down here. Um, he that hath an ear. Here's the announcement. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He gives uh, a couple things for overcomers. Overcomers are Christians. A reminder. A reminder. He that believes on the Lord Jesus Christ is an overcomer. It says in, I'm paraphrasing, it says in 1 John 5. So overcomers, if you're saved, if you know Jesus Christ is your Savior, you're going to ultimately win over death and hell. But he's got a little good news here. He that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna. What? The hidden manna. What was manna? Kids, what was manna? Drew. Yeah, it was like sweet bread. Yeah, anybody else want to give a description of it, Calder? Yeah, it means like, it's like saying, what is it? The Hebrew phrase is, what is it? What's that stuff right there? It's what is it? Yes. That's basically what it means. The Hebrew word is, what is it? You know, it's like a whatchamacallit. Can you go get me a it? What do you call it? You know, a No. Anyway, so I, I don't know. I, I don't know if it was like Twinkies. Donuts, whatever. But it was good stuff, you know. And so, all right. So we're we're here. Here we are. Pergamus is being encouraged by Samana. All right. He that overcomes, I'm going to give you some hidden man. I got some. All right. Let's stop a second. How many of you kids? Your mom somewhere has some snacks hidden. Raise your hand. You know. You don't may not know where they're at, but you. you How th- many of you think mom or has some snacks hidden somewhere? You think so? Anybody else? You think so? Called it, Johnny. Yeah, Johnny and my boys—they try to find out where's it at. You know, Ma- Deb has her little Deb stashes here and there. You know, how many of you kids have some snacks stashed somewhere? You know, I used to put uh, some Hostess stuff in my underwear drawer so my brothers wouldn't eat it. It's you know. <laughs> so, like Mom would buy. I, if I bought it, I'd put definitely put it in there. My mom would buy. She'd say, "Oh, right, hey, I got some Ding Dongs and Donuts and Suzy Qs from Hostess. I mean, great stuff, goods for you. You know, <laughs> it was fine when you're." Teenager, and i be like, "Okay, thanks, mom." Before clipping chance, get my brothers get to open it up, grab a few of those Suzy Qs and a few of these other things, walk down the hall, put it in my underwear drawer. You know, <laughs> that's my hidden manna! You know, so honestly, I don't know what this is, but it sounds good. That's all I can say. Well, I guess he's got the Lord's got something stashed away in the pantry up there, some hidden mana. Cool. We thought it was only for down here. We're going to be able to eat some of it. It's something good. That's for the overcomers. And then the next thing he says, to, just as an encouragement, he says, and I will give him a white stone. I don't understand that. I can throw you theories out about the significance of white. I'm not going to spend time on it. But he says, I'll give him a white stone, each individual overcomer, each individual Christian. You get a white stone and, and in the stone, a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. Wow. I get like a unique secret name from the Lord. And it's written in a stone. It's not easy to write in a stone, even nowadays, but back then, and of course it's nothing to the Lord, but you get something etched in stone, that's for me. And a new name. It's interesting. I, I can't explain all this except to say, I'm glad the Lord individually acknowledges his own. Aren't you glad for that? That's one of the challenges of being a dad and for a parent any in any large any size family, but especially a large family, to individually give individual attention, tailored attention to your kids. Uh, That's one of my big challenges. But the Lord is going to individually recognize us all. Isn't that a blessing? And that's what he says. That's how he's motivating this church. But here it is, the church of Pergamos. They were near Satan. They were right by him. They were doing well for the most part, but they needed to purge out a little bit of compromise. And same thing with us. We say, is there something that I'm compromising in my life don't, don't have this mentality of, you know, there's point, so many people are so wicked around me compared to all the wicked people. I'm pretty good Christian. Don't look at it that way. The Lord doesn't want us to compromise anything sinful, no matter how you compare to somebody else. So let's pray and thank, thank the Lord for our time. Thank you, Lord, for letting us consider